Hi, my name is Jimmy Gertz. Welcome to another episode of Looking at the Movie Times, the podcast where we look at a new movie being released in theaters and place it into the times of film. And this week, with the release of Sausage Party, we're going to be looking at the history of R-rated and animated films. And joining me once again to talk about this, uh, he's been a guest on previous episodes, including the modern Spielberg-inspired films and L.A. Detective Films episodes, Benjamin Wright. Thanks for talking to me again, Ben. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot to talk about when you talk about this genre because there's there's a lot of different tones you can take when you try to make a film, an animated film that is R-rated. You can have, you know, a raunchy comedy like Sausage Party, for instance. You have a lot of kind of art house films. You have anime films. There's a lot of different directions you can go with it. Um, probably a good place to start would be, though, with the work of uh, Rolf Bakshi. Um, Particularly because, you know, with, with his movie Fritz the Cat, you know, arguably there wouldn't even really be the, you know, that that's kind of the originator of what the idea of Sausage Party is, Fritz the Cat, when you say, Ben? Yeah, definitely. And I've actually, uh, I was I was going to say earlier, pressing some topics for this episode, I, I was going to say I feel like a lot of people are sleeping on Ralph Bakshi and sort of his influence and importance in in the genre of, or I guess it's more medium of animation. Um, but it, funnily enough, just doing some research for the show, I've seen Seth Rogen uh, mentioning him by name several times as an influence, and Fritz the Cat specifically, uh, maybe more tonally than you know content-wise, but as you know a major influence on Sausage Party, which has been great to see. Yeah, and I mean, the thing that's so interesting about Ralph Bakshi, I mean, obviously some things have aged better than others when it comes to his films. You know, certainly the animation may not be um, perfect these days, you know, how it is in terms of, you know, its humor and things like that may not be. But I, I think he's an important guy, especially because it's not like he just did... Fritz the Cat isn't, you know, Ralph Bakshi. There's a whole lot of other kind of films he did. Something like American Pop, to me is a crazily ambitious animated film. So I think there's a lot to um, uh, appreciate about his work, even if uh, a lot of it's kind of moved on from uh, you know the era that it came out. Yeah, I think it was always a little oddball. I would imagine even at the time, just from things I've read, that his work stood out a little because obviously Disney as a major sort of animation powerhouse it, when you see these even his you know movies that weren't r-rated like wizards or when he did his lord of the rings films they were a little cheaper the animation was a little cheaper there's still beautiful design and beautiful work in all of his films but i think uh, even at the time people were a little wary and that's kind of the reason why i feel like he's a little underrated but yeah, I, I mean, I remember the first time I saw Heavy Traffic, and I think Heavy Traffic has, which is an R-rated animated film he did, like a little while after Fritz the Cat, and it's like a very personal story about a cartoonist, uh, you know, being on the streets in New York, and it has more in common with Mean Streets than it does like with Snow White or any, you know, like animated film that that uh, came out around that time. Actually, I guess Snow White was a lot earlier, but you know what I mean. And um, it's fascinating a lot and you know he sort of got burnt out by the early 90s i think cool world uh was sort of his uh it was a film that sort of in the way that roger rabbit merged you know real photography real people with with animation uh i know he had a lot of problems with the studio paramount on that one and it just didn't work out and he he sort of he's out there though still funnily enough i remember the first time i saw heavy traffic i just you know not aware of him being a presence at all still in the world like I was very aware of Ralph Bakshi but 
I just tweeted something like, oh, heavy traffic's great, never seen it before. And his, I don't know if it's his, him himself or his, the Twitter account, but it seems to be run and affiliated directly with Bakshi's, just sort of responding, like, great that people are still finding, you know, Bakshi's work today. And I thought that was really cool. So he's out there, and his Twitter account's a great resource for, you know, if you want to know more about his work and, and his influence on, on many things. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's interesting going back into his films now is that, um, in, in some ways, they're time capsules, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, if you look at something like Fritz the Cat, that's obviously both influence. Obviously, it's very humorous. I mean, it's, it's a satire kind of of the 60s counterculture movement and also kind of 60s and 70s scuzzy New York City. And then also, of course, you know, Robert Crumb's involvement with it. Um, it's kind, it's kind of a fa they're kind of fascinating time capsules when you look at these movies. Yeah, and there was a film of his I came across called Coonskin, which obviously, I mean, if you know anything about the time in the 70s and, you know, sort of how the politics of, of you know, civil rights and African-American and all that, you kind of understand where the, t the title's going. And it was, it's a really fascinating movie. I could, for a long time, couldn't find it on DVD. I think I actually, I hate to admit this, found it on YouTube and watched it that way. But it's a really, it's like a send-up of, you know, sort of how... It's written by Bakshi, but it has like you know Barry White and Scatman Crothers in it and such, and it, it's mm -hmm. really like a send up of uh, the political situation in the African American community at the time. And like he very much had his finger on the pulse of he was very much New Hollywood, very you know the movie brats and all that kind of stuff. He, it's just sort of I feel like he's been a little bit forgotten in that sense, weirdly enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, another interesting movie kind of around the same era is Ralph Bakshi, and it's kind of in the same taste as, you know, Heavy Metal, where that's another film that some parts of it have aged better than others, but mm. it's a fascinating movie. It's, it's interesting to me that that movie came out right around the same time as Creepshow did, which, you know, Creepshow's a movie that I, I have a lot of affection for. Like I said, not everything in Heavy Metal has aged super well, but it's just it's just fascinating as kind of a attempt at making real pulp and a real adult film within uh, the animated realm, even if not every single thing in it is super successful. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, whereas maybe Bakshi's work can be a little more uh, exploitative, and I mean, heavy metal is definitely exploitative, and but it's also very pulpy. And I feel like a lot of times people, uh, critics will dismiss animation i've seen a lot of like critics i really respect sort of dismiss animation as oh you know it's for kids or like even the more adult stuff like heavy metal would be like oh it's just pure exploitation and schlock and yes there are like a lot of buxom blondes and nudity like gratuitous nudity and all that stuff in heavy metal which may be some of the things that in this day and age don't age quite as well but there's still a lot of great i mean it's a great anthology you know horror sci-fi adventure animated film and I, there's really nothing like it still and um, I know that there was a sequel that they uh, made a few, like a, probably like two, I think like a decade or two later, but it's more of like one long narrative and it's not quite as good in my opinion as the original Heavy Metal. Um, yeah, there, and just the talent involved in it is insane. It's Dan O'Bannon who wrote, you know, the Star Wars, or sorry, not Star Wars, Aliens and mm -hmm. several other things. And, uh, and, you know, there was, I think voice talent was like Harold Ramis and, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, it's it's insane if you just look at the list of people involved with that film. Yeah, and I mean, it was executive produced by Ivan Reitman, so it's almost like SCTV 
uh, weirdly got involved into this like super pulpy animated film for whatever reason. Yeah, definitely. I think I was wrong about Dan Aykroyd. I think I was thinking Eugene Levy and John Candy. But yeah, definitely. SCTV was all over that movie in, in a big way. And that sort of like late 70s, early 80s comedy wave was was it was very strange to see in, in a movie that's all about, you know, like a an orb coming down and like trying to from space coming down trying mm -hmm. to hunt a girl and she's like just telling these stories so it's fascinating and like i said there's been there's such a wide spectrum of films you could talk about when you talk about r-rated and animated films and these were kind of some of the early progenitors but it's only grown in status um especially now as people's interest in animated films have grown in status since we've had something like the best animated feature um at the oscars i mean this year Last year, we had our first ever R-rated film nominated for Best Animated Film, which was uh, Anomalisa. And I think in terms of when you're talking about an animated film, what's so fascinating about that movie, Anomalisa, is that it couldn't be further from something like Heavy Metal, where in, in as much as that the story it tells is, and I don't mean this as an insult, an incredibly mundane story. It's, you know, about two people meeting and having a one night stand in a, you know, Cincinnati hotel during a business seminar. Like it, it couldn't possibly be more mundane in the settings, but also it's a, you know, it's a fantastic, fantastical story as well. Just in as much as the plots is that these two people have found each other because they're the only two people in the world who don't have to, uh, the voice of Tom Noonan. Um, <laughs> Which is and a terrifying I, prospect. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that it's a movie that, I think they were looking for a way to be able to make it. I mean, originally it was just uh, an audio play done on stage, and uh, they decided reluctantly, I think, well, not reluctantly, but they decided to make it into a movie by using the stop-motion uh, animation. But And maybe it's just because I never got to see a live-action version of it, but I can't imagine a live-action version that would work quite as well as this one. Definitely. Um, it, it's because, very like, much, a, I feel like the animation, the stop-motion animation was very much integral to the story. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, it is mundane, but it is also, there is an, an, an unreal and fantastical element to it. And I think that uh, stop-motion animation in particular and, you know, puppets were the perfect way to ex express that. I, I think if it was just a live-action film, it may have just... There's, there's, I don't know if it would have necessarily uh, worked quite as well as it did. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like there's something, because I really love the Leica films, who I think are also sort of pushing boundaries in terms of more mature uh, animated films. And I feel like right, there's something... Right, they're not rated R, yeah. Yeah, th there's something about sort of stop motion that lends itself to, I, I hate the word quirky, but you know, quirky, for lack of a better term, quirkier stories. And it, it brings a sort of, I can't even really put into words what it is, but you, the, I feel like... Anomalisa, while being very different from a Coraline or a Paranorman, like they all are sort of cut from the same cloth in a little ways. They, they go a little more, they color more outside the boundaries, outside the lines than something like, a, which, you know, I love Disney animated films as much as the next person, but more than something like that. And, and Anomalisa was, yeah, I, I feel like the stop motion was, I almost feel like, I wish Nick to be in New York, uh, Charlie Kaufman, who did not, Anomalisa's previous film, I, I wish that was stop motion too. It just, he, he very much lends himself in his work lends itself to that medium, wouldn't you agree? Well, I mean, I adore Synecdoche, New York, and I almost wouldn't change anything about okay. it. But I, I, I do have to admit, I would be kind of fascinated to see those enormous uh, sets. Uh, I, would, I would love to see like an animated or a stop-motion version of those. Yeah, definitely. So that's the first R-rated one, although even just in the, you know, 
uh, 15 years since it's been around, I, I would argue that's not the first one that should have been uh, nominated for Best Animated Feature, the first R-rated animated film. Definitely. Um, I think a lot of people... Uh, thought that Waking Life in its first year, because that's the first year that the animated feature was around, was in 2001. I think like the nominees were like Monsters Inc., uh, Shrek, and Jimmy Neutron, which I don't, I don't. Strange that's, combination. That's, yeah, um, and I, I do like Waking Life, although I, I would say I'm a much bigger fan of uh, Richard Linklater's other rotoscoped movie, A Scanner Darkly. Yeah, um, I, I would say Waking Life is really good. Um, it's it's closer. I, I feel like Scanner Darkly was a little more of a departure for him, whereas uh, Waking Life is a little more akin to uh, Slacker or those earlier films of his or Tape or one of those. And like. Whereas, and I feel like it was only, it was like him just warming up, you know, for Scanner Darkly. And I, I think he is pretty much said the same, that, you know, he was trying out the technology and seeing what sort of stories you could tell within the, you know, rotoscope animation. And then, you know, Waking Life was great. And I definitely agree that I would, you know, no offense to fans of Jimmy Neutron, if they're still out there, I think, you know, deserve that slot over over a Jimmy Neutron, but um, yeah, it definitely seems, it, it's a great, you know, story about people, which he does really well, and then, you know, later on, he does something, you know, Philip K. Dick adaptation, one of the best Philip K. Dick adaptations, in my opinion. I would agree, yeah, I mean, I think Blade Runner is a better movie, but I think in terms of actually just being a good adaptation of the material, I think A Scanner Darkly might be the more successful one, and I think it's a fascinating film, too, because... Uh, one question that's been around a long time is how much do we consider animated or voice performances performances? You know, yeah. can can something like Andy Serkis in Lord of the Rings or Scarlett Johansson in Her or these characters in A Scanner Darkly be up for you know best Oscar, best actor and best supporting actor nominations? Um, and I think A Scanner Darkly is one of the best um, arguments for it because. I think it's some of the best performances of any of those actors' careers. Um, I mean, it was pre-Iron Man, Robert Downey. It was pre-No Country for Old Men, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, it was definitely, I, I think, that movie. And also Roy Cochran, who I think is sort of underrated, flies under the radar a little bit in that movie. And Winona Ryder, it really just like a, a cast of people who I think never lost it, but sort of were maybe at like a little bit of a lull in their careers. And like I, I definitely see people watching a scanner darkly and being like oh my god you know keanu's still great and you know robert downey jr's still great etc i think robert downey jr had that to maybe throw back real quick to the last episode i was on he had that one-two punch of kiss kiss bang bang and a scanner darkly and that really sort of got him back on the map yeah i, I think that um tropic thunder and iron man is like when it uh, you know it's fully official. one official but i think kiss kiss bang bang uh zodiac and a scanner darkly oh, zodiac, like, of course those were three great performances that, like, you know, uh, Scanner Darkly is definitely where I went, like, whoa, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is actually, you know, a great actor. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great movie, and it's uh, one of the better animated ones. That's another one I would have loved to have seen maybe been nominated in that category. Um, I mean, a, another fascinating one is uh, Waltz with Bashir, which yeah. are, are, could have gone into uh, foreign language film, documentary, or animated film. Um, I think foreign language film is the only one that ended up actually being nominated for. But yep. that was another, to me, really interesting experiment as well. Um, you know, you had Errol Morris kind of already blurring the lines of fact and fiction with some of the reenactments and the thin blue line or something like that. Yeah, of course. So then to 
actually animate war sequences and and uh, I think is you know through animation is an even more interesting step in terms of kind of playing around with the idea of documentary. Although, you know, interestingly, I can't think of many movies since then that it's influenced. Um, there was uh, Chicago 10 and I guess The Kid Stays in the Picture, um, both but were was documentary. Kid Stays in the Picture wasn't animated, was it? No, sorry, I, I was thinking of Chicago 10 as the yeah. same director. Yeah, um, well, they did do the, the Robert, uh, there was an animated television series that was basically The Kid Stays in the Picture about Robert... Um, Evans, the guy, kid Capri, or I can't remember what it was called, but maybe that's what you're thinking of. I think I was just thinking of Chicago 10, which was the same which director and was, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. It's it seems like there should have there could have been more room to mess around in that, and I haven't seen a lot of directors since then try making animated documentaries. Yeah, that's pretty. I, off the top of my head, I, I was going to say Persopolis, but I, Persopolis isn't a documentary, but it, I think it is a, a nonfiction account of um, a graphic novel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, Chicago Ten was great. Walter Bashir was really great. It, it, it's strange, and I, I think maybe when we talk about when we get closer talking about Sausage uh, Party, it, it is strange to see how long because animation takes such a long time. I wonder if maybe we're yet to see. I mean, it's been, I think, Chicago 10 was like 2007, so it's almost 10 years, so maybe we would have seen something by now. Um, and Waltz with Bashir was around the same time as well, I believe. Uh, so, 2008, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's still just a matter of time. And also it's still just, you know, the barrier of getting people to watch animation, which I think is still a really strange, you know, thing for a lot of people. We're more open to seeing different mediums and genres and everything collide but i you would be shocked and you know even when anomalisa came out people who i talked to who were just like yeah i just don't like animation and it's like you're shutting yourself off to such a such a wide variety of films because it's not just you know kids comedies or or even like it's not just you know dick joke comedies it can be waltz with Bashir or it can be chicago 10 etc yeah, I mean, that's a problem that's been around for a long time. You'd be surprised how many people just uh, assumed that, like, you know, The Simpsons, which I would argue is, like, one of the best artistic achievements of, you know, my lifetime, you know. Of course. They just kind of like, oh, I, I thought it was a kid's cartoon, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it totally. Even Miyazaki, I, I've seen a lot of people just be like, oh, well, I don't like anime, so therefore I don't like Miyazaki. And critics I really respect and whose criticism I take very seriously will just you know, discount an entire... It's kind of like when kids' movies come out. Like, I, I, this is a little off topic, but just for a second to prove a point, like, Pete's Dragon came out this weekend, and I thought it was a really well-made film for a family, and uh, there were a number of critics who would justify their critiques or, or their liking the film and being like, oh, I know this is a kid's film, or I know this is a family film, but it's pretty good, and it's like, can't... When, when do we reach a point where an animated film can just be appreciated on its own merits. And maybe this is a completely different discussion than what we're going for, but when can a, you know, a family film be appreciated as just a film? So, No, I mean, I think it's somewhat in the same realm. The problem is that, it, I mean, I guess it is hard to try to make an adult film, um, whether adult just means that there's a lot of, you know, raunchy humor or it means genuinely mature themes. Yeah. It, it's, it's hard to do that when you're working in a genre that's often been kind of ostracized as, you know, it's 60, 70 percent of animated films, probably actually a lot more than that, uh, maybe like 80 or 90 percent of animated films that get released in mainstream theaters, you know, they're kids movies. So um, I guess maybe in that respect, it's hard to see it as what it is, which is just a medium. It's not 
it's not necessarily a child it has to be children. It's just a medium like any other kind. Exactly. Um, when it comes to film. And I think what you're saying, you know, uh, the same thing with Miyazaki, you know, an anime has had that same problem too, I think, attracting certain people. Yeah, there's a strange um, stigma around anime just because of a lot. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've been just as guilty with anime. I love Akira and, you know, Miyazaki. But there's, there's stigmas based on fan base, based on the type of films, etc. Yeah, and it's, uh, Akira in particular is interesting. It's That's a film that deals with kind of you know, a, a country's fallout, both literally and metaphorically, um, and is, you know, a, a really impressive creation, but it's almost kind of like what happened with Godzilla, where Godzilla was obviously, you know, a metaphor for Hiroshima, which is, you know, a very weighty, lofty topic, but people just, they didn't, they didn't see that, and they just saw a monster movie, and they kind of rejected it uh, from there, and that, I guess you could say Akira kind of falls into the same problem as well, but I mean, I think it's an amazing piece of work, one of the best animated films ever made. Yeah, and I think, uh, unlike uh, with something like Godzilla, I feel like you can, you can, we like the American version, the Gareth Edwards version. It, it, it sort of played into the same idea as the original Godzilla, so I think it worked. <laughs> Whereas something like Akira, I know they've been trying to Americanize it for years, and I just don't think it's such a specific. Japanese story that I just don't see how that could work as far as uh, you know America goes, and I think the original is is definitely a masterpiece of that genre. And whenever anyone's like, "What anime films should I watch?" It's like Akira, Paprika, and you know a couple others. And and yeah, it's great. It, I mean, it still holds up today. Maybe the animation could be dated by some stretch, but I also just really am a fan of hand drawn animation, and I think. Some of the things they do, I mean, do watch almost any science fiction film that has to do with TK or, telekine or telekinesis or anything, and you'll see the influence of Akira from Looper. And I mean, Chronicle was like, I would, I, I liked Chronicle a lot, and I would say the last 20 minutes of Chronicle is almost beat for beat the end, like the end of Akira. <laughs> and, and it, which was, it was great for that. I really actually appreciated that because it was cool to see it sort of visualized in that way. But yeah, it's it's a great great film, one of my favorites. Yeah, and I mean it is indeed. I think part of the reason that animation was such a great medium for it was, unless you had the budget of something like Blade Runner, and even then, I think you would have a hard time um, just with the world building that that movie had. I, I think it's really tough to do in live action. I mean, even as an animated film, I think it cost something like ten million dollars or something like that, which yeah. is. You know, really expensive at the time and I mean you see it on the screen you very it's yeah. very the design of the film is great the look of it, the film I know there's a lot of like you'll see like a lot of you know I, I love Hanna-Barbera cartoons as much as the next person but it's known that a lot of their older cartoons were very cheap with you know just the mouths moving and like static you know characters and character design just you know standing there and, and talking and and it, there are some animated films that fall into that realm too that I've seen that of that time period even even as recently as you know the last dribble of uh, hand-drawn films at the maybe the beginning of the 2000s that there was some cheap animation and I, I Akira is just so beautifully crafted that it, it's it's definitely I, I think it's safe to say one of the ones that is unlike any animated film you could watch yeah, and I think that's in part because its creator was dealing with those problems, you know, with studios who were like, let's keep it at this budget, let's just recycle animation or not, you know, show people 
uh, speaking unless we need to. Exactly. And he said, like, I, I, I'll, I'll make it. I'll let you have my manga and, you know, bring it to the screen. But you need to invest these resources into it. And I think that's part of the reason that it holds up beautifully even today is because you really see the money and the work uh, that was put into it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, both with Akira and, and touching back a little bit on the conversation we were having previously, I think not, not even just audiences, but there's also a stigma with a lot of the people putting the money into these sort of uh, more mature animated films who don't quite understand, you know, why it, it has to be as, you know, they, it's, it's the creators are putting as much passion into these films as they would a live action film. But I think a lot of times there's just that stigma with any kind of animation that it's for children. And, and yeah, I, I've read a lot about the, the production and, and there's some, a bunch of other, I feel like almost any Bakshi film you'll read about he really fought with the studios to, or whoever was putting the money into the film at the time. Even his, like, his more, like, I would say mellowed out, not as mature films like The Lord of the Rings, he, just having darker elements in it was strange for whoever was putting the money in. They were like, I don't know if we should have this. Like, yeah, yeah, this, can't this be, can't you soften it up a little bit? So it's, it's a common theme throughout time. And I wonder how the success of Sausage Party is going to affect that, if at all. Well, I, I think it will, and I mean, that that was a movie that fell into the exact same problems we're talking about with all these other ones, you know, where the studios, even with, you know, an A-list star like Seth Rogen, didn't want to invest in it. They just thought people aren't going to get it. I think, you know, they had to get uh, Annapurna Pictures, who, I mean, usually is doing a little bit loftier films like The Master and things like that, uh, to invest in this movie, uh, you, which is basically kind of an animated vessel for dick jokes. Um, yeah. But... From what I from what I've heard, it's done very well at the box office. Um, yeah, came to the second place to Suicide Squad, and I think even beat Suicide Squad on Friday box office return. So wow. yeah, hopefully, hopefully the success of that might can might uh, make uh, studios consider investing in animation that isn't just you know the new Ice Age film or something like that. And maybe even broaden the you know her view vision of horizons of the audience because I'm sure there was a lot of people in theaters seeing Sausage Party this weekend that wouldn't necessarily you know go see the new Sylvain Chalmont movie or or the new Miyazaki <laughs> film or something you know and and you know I don't think that. I haven't seen Sasha's Party yet. I really want to see it. Um, but I don't think it's that's necessarily going to turn them on to those filmmakers and those films. But it's a start. And, you know, I've had some more snobbier friends of mine say, you know, oh, it's still just like, you know, the the typical like dick and fart joke movie. And but, you know, if this is if this does anything, you know, Deadpool was and actually funny enough, there's a weird connection uh, with mm -hmm. something I want to talk about with with Sasha's Party. I, there's there's been a lot of R rated animated films that I've been really excited about getting made and the goon was one I don't know how familiar you are with that based on the Eric Powell graphic novel David Fincher was was going to produce it and Tim Miller uh -huh. who ended up directing Deadpool um, was going to direct it and that was one that I wonder if it'll ha it's very famously they did a Kickstarter for it they tried to get it up and running and I wonder if the success of Sausage Party will allow for something like that to happen now because there's the studios will see that money can be made from an R-rated uh, comedy that isn't, you know, doesn't feature a Disney character that's well-known or songs or, you know, et cetera. But, hey, you know, I'd also like to see an R-rated animated film that featured songs in it. So, like, it, you know, yeah. it's really a wide variety of things you could be doing within the, the medium that it just feels like it's, it's I honestly, with how long animation has been around, sometimes it only feels like we're still just scratching the surface of the medium. 
I think so, and I think studios uh, have just been very scared of it, which is why I think you see um, not many, you know, just to go back for anime for an example, you don't see many animes that are being released on a large level. Usually they're kind of cult uh, successes that kind of have to find their audience over time. Definitely. Um, Whereas you have, as you say, you know, they've been trying to remake Akira for years. They're going to remake Ghost in the Shell next year. Yeah. They're going to remake uh, Death Note. And that's not to say none of these movies could be good. Um, you know, Death Note is uh, directed by Adam Wingard, so I'll, I'll see that. But of um, uh, at the same time, I, I think it speaks to a lack of confidence in the medium of animation, which is disappointing. Yeah, 100%. I, I feel like. I mean, kind of like we've been talking about, it's just a very difficult uh, medium or genre, whatever you want to call it, to, to convince people that, hey, there's stories to be told, you know, within this world. And, and not for lack of trying, some really talented people, like I was saying, David Fincher. And there was also um, something, you know, related back to heavy metal. I remember at the end of the, the first decade of the 2000s, they were trying to get another heavy metal off the ground, and it was Fincher... Zack Snyder, Gore Verbinski, and James Cameron sort of on and off, like wanting to do this new anthology animated film. And um, I guess like the reasons why it fell apart are sort of all over the place. But a big reason was because, you know, how are, how, how are we going to pump this much? I mean, Fincher and Cameron and all them don't come with a small price tag, you know. So I, it's, it, it, that's a lot of money you're going to be putting into a film that, that and studios are going to be expecting a big return. And then, then it's to their right, you know. So... It's it's interesting that talent like that can't can't even get some of these films made. Yeah, and kind of veering more into the raunchy humor stuff, but still on this discussion of struggles with studios. Um, just just recently, I rewatched the uh, South Park movie. Um, yeah. And you know, on the one hand, it's fascinating to me that this movie went through so much trouble with studios who wanted a PG thirteen version of it, who had an NC seventeen for months. Because, you know, rewatching it today and, you know, I, I tend to lean more on, the, you know, the person people would be like, oh, PC, social justice warrior. Mm -hmm. Even watching it today, it's it feels almost quaint. There's very little even someone like me would be offended by in that movie. So to me, it's, uh, I, I don't know if it's an expression of how far we've come in terms of what we would accept in the past uh, decade or since that it came out. Or if it's just the ridiculousness of the studios, it's probably a combination of the both. Uh, impaled and infuriated by it. Yeah, and I know they had like a giant battle with the MPA over that one, and in Team America: World Police uh, as well, I believe, which was a marionette, you know, action film, which is great. Um, I think I think a big part of that might just be I think over time we've just I love Trey Parker, Matt Stone, but we've definitely been numb to become numb to a lot of the South Park humor. I think I know I have, and I would consider myself a pretty big fan of theirs and 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 that work. But yeah, it seems like a strange argument to have and I I haven't really read anything about if Sausage Party had to battle the MPA or A or not have you um yeah I have I think I was reading that the one thing that they had to get rid of for an NC-17 rating is that um at the end of the movie there's uh, this has already been said by many people so mm -hmm. um there's a there's a giant climactic orgy sequence um okay. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've seen it, so it's it's very graphic, albeit in the way that Team America's sex scene is graphic, where there's not any actual genitals or anything like that. Um, and apparently, the only thing they had to uh, get rid of to uh, keep an R rating was uh, a little bit of pubic hair on one of the foods, which, again, to me, I mean, 
there's so many baffling decisions that the MPAA makes. It's maybe it's best not to try to you know reason through any of them. But yeah, of course. That that that, that strikes me as such a bizarrely weird thing to fixate on. Yeah, I, I mean the thing to me about South Park that was uh, so unusual, like I said, is that it's you know it's a very old-fashioned movie, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of a it, a classic musical. Really, there's you know there's a reprisal of the main theme at the end of it. Uh, so in a way, and part of it is just I think that we've changed our changed what we find so offensive has changed since that first happened. But to me, it's, it's yeah. so shocking that uh, people were that offended by that movie. And the movie's plot, to a degree, is basically talking about how their own internal fights with the studio and with parent parental groups that were so infuriated with uh, South Park, which isn't a, a new thought by any means. There was a Simpsons episode in season two that was about parents angry about cartoons. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating time capsule in a way to look back on this film and think that people were so angry about you know this in particular, especially me as somebody who um, you know can certainly get offended. I couldn't really find anything to be offended about in that movie. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, it was a bit of a the internet existed, but it was a pre-internet age um, when you know being offended by something couldn't spread like wildfire over Twitter, Facebook, whatever in ten minutes. Um, so I. It, it, yeah, I haven't seen it in a little while. I was going to try to watch it today and just to brush up. But, um, yeah, it, it's funny, too, because, it, it, you know, they they very much inject themselves in to the film. And it's very much about also, like, atheism and stuff like that, which I, I think in a time when – that was definitely a period of everyone just being outraged over everything as well. Because And I think it's a common theme in a lot of these films we're talking about. And even a common thing going back to what we were talking about about – audiences and studios sort of misunderstanding what animation can be or not fully appreciating what animation can be is that I think a lot of times people are worried these films are going to be marketed to kids or that they could potentially like a, a child might wander into a to a video rental store which you know that doesn't exist anymore but uh, you know go on Netflix and click on South Park the movie thinking it's it's a kids movie I even saw people this weekend saying you know oh, I wonder, like, how many people are going to walk in the sausage party thinking it's a kid's movie. And I think that's... You know what? There were, there, there were signs in front of my uh, movie theater saying that, you know, a warning people do not, like, bring your kids to it. So I guess they, they're thinking in their mind there still might be some people. That's great. Well, then I guess it's a possibility. And I think a lot of it stems from that. And then as far as the South Park movie goes, I think at the time a lot of what that was, like, post-Columbine, too. What, and, and, like, it just seemed like culture popular culture was under attack more than ever you know that was kind of like the beginning i feel of like this swell of outrage culture we feel about everything in popular culture that that happens now um that the like 99 2000 period really feels like where all of where you know led to where we are now uh and i mean that's the beginning of you know the internet as we know it so i think it, it all is very closely tied in and south park was definitely one of the first you know sort of dartboards for for you know religious groups and parent groups and the mpaa and just everyone being like you know we're gonna put this movie and yeah you're right it seems very tame by today's standards like i can just watch it and last time i watched it i enjoyed it but it didn't like think of anything whereas you know um when i when it came out there was just such a an uproar about it that even as someone like myself who was watching south park on tv at the time albeit i was probably way too young to 
understand a lot of the humor on the show my parents were just like there's no way in hell you're going to see this movie like at all yeah and i mean maybe what you're saying with the internet is true maybe it's just since then now the internet the anonymity of it has allowed people to be so terrible and there's such access to such genuinely terrible stuff that being outraged about something like south park which is mostly just cartoons swearing at each other uh probably comes off as really comparatively quaint yeah um yeah but for whatever reason there has not been a lot of attempt at making r-rated animated comedies in the time in between south park and sausage party um there's been a few including uh trey parker matt stone's own team america world police which i i think ratcheted up the offensiveness to a much bigger degree uh even though i think that it's it's maybe not as well remembered or as controversial as south park was um i mean there's obviously the uh, classic sex scene in that movie, which was you know okay, a problem with them, <laughs> yeah, and the MPAA. But you know there was also just you know ethnic stereotypes. There's also a lot of outrage about like uh, Hollywood liberals, which um, I, I guess what you you could be irritated by their self righteousness, but I didn't I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Whereas if I remember correctly, the second half of that movie is mostly just them brutally murdering you know Hollywood celebrity uh, puppets for most of it. But there's yeah, also a lot more, of really, and I think. George Clooney, maybe, or yeah, Matthew, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. But there's also, you know, quite a bit of funny stuff in it, especially, and this is something it shares in common with Sausage Party, um, especially when it's just kind of parodying the form itself. Like, I think a lot of the funniest jokes in Team America World Police aren't the most offensive ones. They're ones that are kind of lampooning the Michael Bay action movie genre, or even just lampooning the puppets, just weird placements of the strings and things like that. Yeah, well... I feel like South Park the movie and South Park the show, like the best moments of South Park were very of the moment. And there's a documentary you can watch about South Park and anything you read with Trey Parker and Matt Stone, they talk about how, you know, the day before they could be working on an episode that airs the following night. And that's created some of the best South Park. But I think also for the, in, for the movie, for the sake of the movie, you know, a 12 year old might not know, not, you know, not that I necessarily condone a 12 year old watching South Park, the movie, but a 12 year old might not know who Saddam is or appreciate like how funny it was to be lampooning one of the greatest dictators alive at the moment. And, um, I, and I feel like Team America is a little more, it's a little more jokes about the form of action movies and those Bruckheimer films. And it, don't get me wrong, it's about North Korea, it's about 9 11, it's about a lot of those things. But, hey, guess what? North Korea, the effects of North Korea are still felt today, and 9-11, the effects of 9-11 are still felt today. So it feels a little more timely and relevant. I feel I just watched it probably within the last two months, and um, I, I think it held up really well. And, uh, you know, South Park, the movie is still funny, but I, I think that um, that Team America might, might stand a chance of uh, standing the test of time a little more. I don't know if you would agree with that if you've watched it recently. Yeah, I, I would say I'm a slighter, slightly bigger fan of the South Park movie than okay. Team America, although I, I should also preface this by saying I'm not a huge Trey Parker and Matt Stone fan. Um, I, I, I'm not an avid watcher of South Park or anything like okay. that. But, I mean, I certainly uh, there's a lot of funny stuff in both those movies, and I appreciate that they really went at trying to make a large mainstream R-rated com- animated comedy. Um, there was not, there's not many of them between these ones and uh, Sausage Party. The only other one I could think of was Aqua Teen Hunger Force, that movie, which, you know, I think is a pretty funny movie. I think the lobby jingle uh, opening scene of that movie is a fantastic scene. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I think it was a small scale film, even if it is, a, I probably was a wide release movie. 
So I think Sausage Party is really the next great stab at trying to make the R-rated animated comedy. Whether or not there'll be more after this, we'll just have to see. But I think the reason that Sausage Party works when it does work is because it it's so it's very much a parody of Pixar films. It's very much a parody of DreamWorks films. Uh, ones where there's some anthropomorphic uh, creature uh, to it. In fact, when I was watching it, uh, for some reason, I thought of for the first time in literally probably like a decade, I thought of uh, Shark Tale. I'd, like I just I just thought of, kind of <laughs> okay. like, just kind of like those DreamWorks movies yeah. that come and disappear. Was there a Martin and, Scorsese as a fish cameo in there, or is <laughs> no? Although um, uh, Edward Norton is in it uh, as oh, a bagel, wow. he does, and he does an extended Woody Allen impression for pretty much the entire movie. So you, you do get at least one classic director uh, there in there. But what the things that work in it really well, I think, are because they brought in. It's, it's not just Seth Rogen and crew, although certainly they're uh, a big part of it, especially in terms of the voice acting. They also brought in, as the directors, these two guys. One of them had done Shrek 2, Madagascar 3, Monsters vs. Aliens. The other one had done, I think, primarily Thomas the Tank Engine videos, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, so these are people who worked in the animation that they're parodying. Uh, you know, they brought in the famous Disney composer Alan Menken to do an opening song, albeit a much more raunchy one than he would usually do. And I, I think that stuff's really important when you parody something to make it seem like the thing that you're parodying. Sometimes I, I feel like these parody movies just kind of forget that and, and cast it to the side. But it's an important part of making the humor stick. And I think this movie, for whatever faults it has, I think it is an uneven movie. It does get that, which I appreciate. Yeah, 100%. I mean, obviously, I think I've said previously, I, I haven't seen it yet, and I really look forward to it. But, I mean, not just Sausage Party, but going back to a little about what you were saying uh, first about uh, you know, getting the right people. I mean, is something like hiring Alan Macon is from the golden age of Disney. You know, gave us Little Mermaid and Songs of the Little Mermaid, and and uh, Howard Ashmore was also a big part of that. But you know, he's very integral to the Disney legacy and those those golden that golden period of uh, of films and the songs um, with them. Uh, and I think that to me with. Uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. I know they didn't direct it, but obviously I'm guessing their fingerprints are all over this. It seems very much like their movie and like they shepherded it along. Um, it, it, it seems like it, when you want to parody something, and I listened to your episode about Popstar and I very much agreed with, I thought Popstar was a great sort of send up of the, you know, the music docs. And I thought, you know, I love MacGruber, which is an excellent send up of sort of, you know, the machismo action films and stuff like that. Oh. What makes those kind of things work is they are very, those people you can tell are fans of what they're parodying, but you know, everything should be parody parodied at some point and everything deserves to be sent up. And, and from just watching the trailers for sausage party, it just seems like, like they, they know, I love the very first, uh, maybe not the teaser, but one of the first trailers, which was just like, you know, happy go lucky, uh, vegetables and fruits and hot dogs, etc., in a grocery store, and you know they're excited to go home with the family. Which you know that could be the trailer for Toy Story. And then as soon as they get home, you know she whips out the knife, and they realize, oh my god, this is going to be like a food Armageddon for us. So I, I think they know what they're doing, and it's 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 fascinating to to see that. Yeah, and like I said, this is an uneven movie in some places. I think sometimes it relies a little bit on. Isn't it funny that the you know soy sauce has a Chinese voice and the salsa has a you know Hispanic voice? Um, yeah. And also, 
uh, maybe this is going to what we're saying about it being so hard to shock anybody anymore. Sometimes I feel like it, this leans really heavy on the profanity. Uh, you know, not that I have anything wrong with profanity, but I kind of like to see it more used as an instrument rather as than like punctuation, like it's kind of used in this movie. I've also um, heard that it, it really, and correct me if I'm wrong, it goes into atheism a lot and and sort of theology and and such. Uh, is that does that did that work for you? Is that actually apparent in the movie? It's very apparent in the movie. It worked okay for me. Um, it was a little bit more successful at it, I think, than The Invention of Lying, which is another movie that kind of uh, leaned into that heavily, especially because uh, towards the end of the movie, it also makes the point that atheists can be very self-righteous and kind of um, alienate people that they might be uh, otherwise be able to, if not convince, at least kind of agree with. And so it's a movie that ultimately, at the end of it, for all the ethnic stereotypes, for all the atheism versus Christianity, is a movie about tolerance, and this tolerance is, ex, uh, you know, displayed in an extended pansexual orgy, uh, but still, still tolerance nonetheless. So I think that helped in some ways make it a little less cloying than it might have been if it was just kind of a, totally a self-righteous atheist screed. So like I said, uh, it's, I, I have mixed feelings on the movie, but I am happy that it was made because I'm hoping what it will allow is for not just more R-rated animated movies, but studios who might be more receptive to unconventional uh, animated movies and thinking beyond the box of just, okay, uh, animated movies can be, you know, either Pixar or Trolls, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's a really, there's a strong wave of animation on television right now. I mean, the obvious are like Adventure Time, regular show, uh, stuff like that. A lot of what's being done on Cartoon Network right now, um, and, and there's a show called Gravity Falls, which is on Disney, and it's pretty much Twin Peaks for, you know, young adults. It's it's really fascinating. It's definitely worth watching. Um, I think a lot of those guys will eventually make the leap, and I know a lot of them are intending on making the leap to feature animation, and a lot of those shows contain much more adult themes. Like, some of, you know, primetime... Cartoon Network almost feels like Adult Swim at this point when I watch it because it's like the adult themes, adult jokes. Uh, Gravity Falls has like references to Hellraiser and stuff like that. And I'm just like, you know, I think we're going in a direction where we'll be seeing those guys make a lot more movies like that. And then, as we were talking about earlier, I, I hope that Sausage Party sort of opens the doors and not just for people to be like, oh, let's only make R-rated anthropomorphic uh, enter whatever food animals, um, you know, dick and fart joke comedies from now on. Like, I hope it opens the doors a little wider to people to be like, maybe we should take a stab at doing David Fincher and Tim Miller's The Goon or doing a, doing something a little harder edge. Like, in the way that Sin City, I feel like, brought back for, even, even just for a moment, you know, maybe a little more highly stylized uh, sort of comic book, you know, pre this sort of run of Marvel films. I, I, I wonder if Sausage Party could potentially do the same thing. Yeah, or even something more low budget, like say, you know, I, I we're talking about animation on TV. I'm a big fan of BoJack Horseman. You know, definitely, I would love, I would love for something like that, even if it's just like an indie movie, to come around as well. Oh yeah, and I, you know, that's what gets me so excited about Netflix and and Amazon and other original content is I feel like we're only scratching the surface of that, and there's going to be a lot of creators jumping ship from the you know more established studios and networks and going, oh, you know, if I can do... I, I haven't watched enough of BoJack to really get a good sense of it, but I've seen enough to know that it's definitely a very unique animated 
uh, property. And I, I would love to see more of that. And I think a lot of these creators are going to be flocking to places like that because, um, I mean, the old way of doing things is sort of changing in a, in a major way because of players like Netflix and stuff, both for film, television, and and everything else. So I, I think only time will tell. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me once again, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah. I actually, I, I don't mean to bogart your podcast, but I had a, a couple of just quick recommendations. Could I rattle them off real quick? Absolutely. There's a really great documentary, which I don't know. You should just keep your eyes out for it. But I saw it in a theater here and I know they toured it around. It was called Persistence of Vision. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of playing into a lot of what we're saying here. It's kind of like the Jodorowsky's Dune of of animated films about Richard Williams, who was working on The Prince and the Cobbler, which came out in the 90s. And he was sort of trying to make this very, I mean, a lot of the film as it is now is is very much uh, surreal, dolly X imagery, and just beautiful. And then some of it, because he just, it took him like a, it took forever. He started in the 70s and it went through the 80s, just the production on this movie. And the documentary sort of shows like his obsession with wanting to make it this perfect creation. Whereas I feel like, Jodorowsky's Dune, it was like a zeal and ambition and excitement to make something that never got made. This is sort mm -hmm. of obsession and, and sort of just perfectionism that undoes something that could have been a really great piece of animation that, for all we know, may have broken down a lot of the walls of, of, that we've been talking about, a lot of the barriers of, you know, animation is for children, etc. It's really worth a look. Um, it, it contains a lot of Disney copyrighted imagery and and not a way that is favorable so i don't know when or if we'll be able to see it i saw it in a touring screening but uh just keep your eyes out for that um another one just real quick uh the haunted world of el super Bisto, which is a really strange rob zombie uh rob zombie is an acquired taste um or he's a very unique taste he has his fans and but it's a very much like a fritz the cat via rob zombie kind of uh, animated film that he did, which again, he fell into disrepair, or you know, he didn't get to finish it the way he wanted to because people were like, what is this? You know, there's boobs and everything else and this, uh, it's very much seems like in, in tune with Sausage Party, but through Rob Zombie's sensibilities. And then just real quick, um, Spawn, the animated series, which is great. It's done by the people who did the Batman animated series. It contains a lot of what we're talking about, very dark adult themes. Uh, and then finally, I really was a fan of um, Legends of the Guardians of Gahul, the Zack Snyder animated <laughs> film, which you laugh. And anyone that I, it, it starts as a very kiddie sort of family friendly animated film. And no joke turns into a very like Secret of Nam meets Full Metal Jacket by the end of the movie. It's, it's, uh, it's what I think he did because he couldn't get that heavy metal movie going. I feel like uh -huh. this was the alternative to doing that. And you really feel it watching the movie. It gets really dark and intense by the end so those are just some quick things that sort of came to my mind as we were talking about this today sure no i'm great for uh thanks for recommending them and thank you once again for joining me ben. yeah of course all right see ya